1: For 27 years he's been behind bars. Today he was freed on bail pending his appeal for a murder he says he didn't commit. Dressed smartly and with a wide smile, 44 year old Stephen Downing emerged from Little Hay Prison in Cambridgeshire to meet the waiting press. i
2: would like to thank uh, all the public for their support and uh, for the media for everything that they've done. Been very, very pleased with it.
1: Stephen Downing there, walking out of prison in 2001. After eight years of campaigning, led by Matlock Mercury editor Don Hale, Stephen was released on bail, pending an appeal, for his conviction of the murder of Wendy Saul in 1973. He'd been inside for 27 years. The appeal was finally held after a remarkable false start. The prosecution barrister declared, on the very first day of the appeal, he'd booked a family holiday the very next day, and he'd have to take a pause for a fortnight. Oops, sorry! But, hey, what's two weeks when you've been in prison for nearly three decades?
3: I, I certainly remember the, the, the front page of that day because we obviously went with a huge headline for it and I think the headline just said cleared and then they were keen to get my byline quite high up and then it said Matt Barlow at court but it almost looked like it said cleared Matt Barlow.
1: Those present in the media throng of the court in London included Matt Mercury journalist Matt Barlow. What's your connection with Don Hale and the Matlock Mercury? It was my
3: first proper job, really, in journalism, was working at the Matlock Mercury. When all of this was happening, as it was all coming to a head, um, when Downing got released, and it was just a real eye-opening time.
1: Getting his first professional job at the climax of an eight-year-long massive mistrial case, spearheaded by his editor and new boss, was an enormous stroke of luck for young reporter Matt Barlow.
3: Going into 2002, I covered the appeal hearing down in London, um, which for me at the time was a really big deal. Don had left the Matlock Mercury at that point, um, and I was given the job of covering it as the reporter on the day down at the Old Bailey, which was just incredibly exciting.
1: And so tell me about going down to cover the appeal.
3: Well, it, it was it was quite low budget in a way, and that, that's the thing that sort of really struck me because the hotel that I was booked in to stay was probably one of the cheapest ones that we could find uh, there. It, it was really a rough was it right? old place. I, I, well... I think some of the other guests might have been paying by the hour, but it was just kind of just Kings, a bit. Kings roomy. Cross, then. Uh, yeah, I know. It was. Um, it, it was. It was certainly sort of down at heel. Um, I went down on the train. It was in the middle of winter, and one of the things that, that struck me was the kind of whole wintry feel of that. And, and certainly from the, the quietness of, of covering the case um, and, and the darkness of the Old Bailey, this sort of atmospheric, sort of dark wooden low ceilings there, Um, to going outside and and just being hit by all the uh, the flashes of the the photography as as those doors opened and everyone was like you know kind of rabbits staring into car headlights sort of early evening I I think as we did walk out of the court I know it did start in the morning but it was all wrapped up within the day
4: The famous steps of the Court of Appeal have seen it all before but never such a walk to freedom that began so many years ago for the first time since he was arrested at the age of 17. Stephen Downing could face the world tonight as an
2: innocent man. just like to thank everyone. They've been absolutely fantastic. What's your view of the Derbyshire yeah. Police now, Stephen? What's your view of the Derbyshire yeah. Police now, Stephen? Of police now, Stephen? I've got no problems with the Derbyshire Police. They're a different force altogether.
5: Patrick McLaughlin, Member of Parliament for Derbyshire Dales. I'd never been to a court of appeal before to sit and watch a case, so it was uh, it was outside the Strand where um, you know you often see these cases uh, come forward. But uh, I don't think I've been back since, actually. If my memory turns turns me right, the sort of the Crown Prosecution Service accepted quite a bit of what the uh, defence lawyer was saying for Stephen, or the the uh, lawyer that was putting Stephen's case, uh, and that's when the uh, I have got it written down somewhere. I'm afraid I the, because because I hadn't seen anything like that before. Uh, and um, they decided the case was basically an unsafe case. It was very matter-of-fact, and, I, um, you know, as to why they said that the case was unsafe. And it is important to remember that that's what the court decided. They did not decide of innocence, actually. They said it was an unsafe conviction, and therefore should not stand. You know, when you get... And, and in a way, after such a long period of time, it was quite revealing that, um, that, that this it had taken so long.
6: Yeah, the, I'm sure there will be a Stephen. Who do you blame it. for what happened to you? Uh, that's all in the past. Let's forget it. What about
1: you?
3: What he. Was released on was was the police procedure at the time that had been so uh, wayward because he hadn't been um, given access to a, a solicitor or legal representation. He hadn't uh, ha- he didn't have his full rights. So, you know, in, in in terms of the depth of the case, it, in some ways it was a kind of ru- by that point it was a kind of rubber stamping exercise, and even to this day because of that and because of his release. In a way, Stephen's case hasn't been sort of fully aired, you know, since then in in court.
7: I'm Neil MacKay, and we're in the uh, graveyard uh, in
1: Bacon. Neil wrote a factual drama for the BBC, in denial of murder, about the case in the early two thousands.
7: So early on in the research I did, I spoke to the Reverend Edmund Urquhart, who was still the vicar of Bakewell at the time I met him, and he had been the vicar at the time, and um, he uh, rather disputed the fact that uh, this was, Bakewell was a town uh, that sort of had its secrets or or, or had its villains uh, lurking in the bushes, trying to suppress the truth about this story. He He rather disputed that, and he put me in touch with various people who, uh, who, who took a different view of that, basically.
1: And so was the picture that you came to a kind of very different picture than the one that you'd originally set out to investigate, the one that Don Hale had been proposing? Uh,
7: I'd say it was more complex, I would say, um, the picture that I got. So that at the time I was researching Stephen's release from prison was becoming more and more imminent and then I attended um, Stephen's appeal hearing at the Royal Courts of Justice. And obviously I read the appeal court's judgment. So the, so clearly they went through the evidence carefully, bit by bit, and took the various pieces of evidence which had been used to convict Stephen. They basically found that the conviction was unsafe for various reasons. Principle one being that he wasn't cautioned at the correct time he should have been cautioned got to remember this was all pre pace the guidelines the police have now police and, and criminal evidence act police investigations happened at that time then under a thing called the judge's rules and there were that was a kind of code that had been created for the police and under the judge's rules a suspect has to be cautioned at a certain time in a certain way now it's much more stringent under pace you know and the, and the fact the police caution is um it's a more complex piece of wording and all the rest of it. Mm. So clearly he was not cautioned properly, Stephen. And um, there were question marks about the blood on him. Prosecution alleged that that blood was because he attacked Wendy. But the rebuttal to that, he said that he tried to help her. And that's how he got the blood on him and so on. So bit by bit, these the, the grounds for conviction were found to be unsafe. But at the end of that judgment, the appeal court judges, and anybody can read this, it's, mm. it's on their document, They didn't pass any comment on his uh, guilt one way or the other. They simply said that the conviction was unsafe and they said that um, a particular feature of the case was that um, when Stephen was arrested, he had admitted to sexually assaulting Wendy Sewell and also the attack which resulted in her murder. Two separate things. And it wasn't too long before he retracted the admission of murder, confession to murder, should I say. Mm. But it was some considerable time after that before he retracted the confession of sexual assault. So if you read the judges summing up where the conviction is quashed, they make a point of saying that it, it seemed an oddity that uh, if he'd not sexually assaulted Wendy Sewell, why would he not have um, retracted that confession at the same time he retracted the confession to murder and i pass no comment or judgment on that it's not for me to pass any judgment whatsoever nonetheless that's what the the judges said so there's no question that it was an unsafe conviction and um there's no question that you know we we now don't know who was responsible for what happened
1: because it was quite detailed and graphic a confession about sexual
7: assault yes, if you read i 've read the original trial transcript and the and the statements and so on and and you know clearly the it was a ferocious sexual assault um extremely violent and must have been h- utterly horrific for Wendy the victim you know she she didn 't die immediately she was hit about the head and staggered and then tried to get up and um, must have known wondered what on earth was happening, and then she lost consciousness and then was taken to hospital and, um, you know, she didn't die immediately.
1: I've got a copy of the Appeal Court transcript. It does not make comfortable reading.
8: Had the admissibility of the confession been challenged and impropriety by police officers alleged it would have had a profound effect upon this trial. Confessions are excluded on the ground that they are not obtained voluntarily, even if they are admitted. There remains the question whether they contain reliable admissions. In our judgment, had the matter been raised with the judge, these confessions may well have been excluded by him. Even if they had been admitted, the judge would have alerted to circumstances which may have rendered them unreliable. The judges' rules and now the procedures under the Police and Criminal Evidence Act nineteen eighty four were promulgated to ensure fairness. In the absence of an investigation of the facts, with the rules in mind, the jury may well, in a case such as the present, have been unaware of the real risks arising from the non observance of the rules and the proper procedures. Had the matter been challenged, the jury's eyes would have been opened as to the risks.
1: We've talked about this before because we read the partial trial transcript when the judge was going, has it been obtained under duress? But the defence never did it. They never said this is wrong. The
8: court is aware of the unlikelihood on the face of it of someone sexually assaulting a badly injured woman, as the appellant admits he did, unless it was he who previously disabled her with sexual assault in mind. The court is also aware of the confessions made to several doctors in circumstances very different from those in the police station.
1: During his 27 years in prison, Stephen had allegedly repeated the admission that he had sexually assaulted, but hadn't murdered Wendy, to various medical staff.
8: The presence of the appellant near the scene and the nature of the weapon must also be borne in mind. It is not, however... Of this court to speculate as to what might have happened had the fundamental defect, which we find to have existed in the conduct of this trial, not been present. As Lord Bingham had recently underlined in RV Pendleton 2002 1 WR paragraph 19, the question for it, in brackets, the courts of appeal, consideration is whether the conviction is safe and not whether the accused is guilty.
1: It's not a question of innocence or guilt, it's a safety of the conviction.
8: In the somewhat bizarre circumstances of this case, we expressly do not address ourselves to the latter question. As to the confessions, if they are unreliable, the conviction is unsafe. The court is not considering new material, but for the first time in a court material existing at the time of the trial has been thoroughly investigated and analysed. The safety of this conviction depends on the reliability of confessions made to the police on the 12th of September 1973. The court cannot be sure that the confessions were reliable. It follows that the conviction is unsafe. It's
1: not to do with new evidence, it's just to do with the confession.
8: We do not speculate as to what might have happened if the defence had been conducted in a different way. For the reasons we have given, this appeal is allowed and the conviction is quashed. Lord Justice Pill, are there any applications?
9: Because I remember finding out that she'd been sexually assaulted and um, there were some notes somewhere about that, that you know her clothes had been removed and things. And I remember saying, oh well, who's done it then if it wasn't Stephen? And I remember sort of saying to Don, I don't, you know, my name is Jackie Dunn. I used to work as a junior reporter at the Matlock Mercury. I just thought in a way, her as a victim was overlooked in, in the lot of things. And I mean, obviously we were looking at it from the point of view of his conviction and mm. I sort of pointed out that, you know, she wasn't, you know, she wasn't,
1: she wasn't a person. She wasn't <laughs>
9: a thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Kind of matter-of-fact descriptions of her. And like, well, she did this, she did that, she was this person, and that's it. And no sort of, I don't know, a, lot, a bit of humanity about her had been lost, you know.
1: Mm. Mm. It's easy to forget that at the centre and at the start of this story is the brutal murder of a woman, of Wendy Saul. She was taking a stroll in a country graveyard during her lunch break on a sunny day in a picturesque Derbyshire town, in 1973, nearly 30 years before all this media and attention, legal battles and publicity. But by this point, in 2002, the coverage is focused on Stephen, the campaign to free him and the miscarriage of justice that had seen him inside for so very long. And for some, he was labelled the second victim of the crime. And as Stephen became centre stage, Wendy, the real, real victim, seemed to slowly slip out of sight. As women often do.
10: My name's Moira Black and I work in Bloomers at Bakewell, one of the pudding shops. Well, I, re- I remember when it happened and I remember the um, editor of the Mercury, Don Hale, investigating the case. It took him, I think, seven or eight years, but uh, he finally got Stephen Downing released because it was a sort of an unsafe. And so after 27 years, he was released.
3: I can remember there being a bit of a party when he was released. But this is what I'm talking about. It was quite sort of low budget and kind of quite small town because the party that that they had initially when he was released was in a a small rural pub called the Cock and Pullet up in Fullow, which was just the kind of middle of nowhere, real oldy worldy pub that in one of the back rooms of here that this was the first time that that downing was released so, so
1: who organized that I,
3: I I don't know to be honest um I think it was um Stephen's family oh, did okay. and uh, and a lot of the staff although there weren't many of us working at the newspaper there was, there was a good chunk of the the staff went to that um and and there was you know a bit of a buffet and like i say it was in in the back room um of, of this pub that that was when he was initially released um and there had been press conferences in in higher profile places like the George at Hathersage, which is quite an upmarket pub. That's where all the kind of world's sort of media, well, sort of national media, went to. But this was this was more a sort of select type family, family and friends type gathering. This this was.
1: After his release from prison, Stephen returned to his family home and his hometown of Bakewell in Derbyshire. He still lives there now. Don recorded his research and investigation in a book under the understandably controversial title of Town Without Pity.
10: I don't believe it was Stephen Downing. And there's lots of rumours, which I can't say whether they're right or wrong. But I don't don't think... I think there was a lot of cover-ups. I'm convinced there was a lot of cover-ups. But, you know, Stephen Downing still gets blamed for it in Bakewell. The Town Without Pity...
1: Because that's really harsh, terrible, isn't it? But
10: do you think it's? Tri- it's I think up? it's very true. I, very, I think it's very true about the people in well You see, yeah. so but they they still believe it was him. It must be quite hard for him to still be here with that hanging over. It must be, but his family were here. You see, so that's where he came came home to. And then obviously went back to prison, and he wouldn't. He, he, and people have asked him, "Why didn't you say you'd done it? You could have been out after fifteen years."
1: Fourteen well, five, something uh, yeah. like so, that,
10: didn't they? He said, "Well, why would I admit to something I hadn't done?" And he never did. So, you you do you
1: think still people are still prejudiced against him
10: now? Oh, I think so. Yes. Oh yes. I don't think he's welcome at all. You know, I, you know. I think people just accept that he lives here now, but they don't befriend him or anything. Oh. terrible
6: yeah it's terrible Stephen had uh, of course a lot of compensation which uh, i'm told is there's not much of it around now and what he's done with that i'm not quite sure my name's david G. I um i was a member of the derbyshire police for um just over 30 years 30 couple, 32 years actually but he certainly did try to rebuild himself there's no question in a, in a, a sort of a reputable uh, profession um with I don't know what success he's had on that, but he certainly lives his life um, close to his sister, and is still uh, amongst the community.
1: There was a big event when Stephen came back to Bayquale. Were you there then? Uh,
5: I did. uh, Yes, I think I went up on the uh, the Friday night or something to uh, a sort of uh, a a celebration for his release, and that's the first time I met Stephen. I'd not seen him in prison or anything like that, Um, um, and you know, I met him and sort of. Wished him well for the future because uh, it was obviously going to be a big change in his life. Because one of the things you know that um, became apparent to me as a result of seeing him, and I did actually remember talking to David Blunkett about this, uh, was what um, was if you're down for release, you're prepared for release. If all of a sudden the court tells you you are being released because of an unsafe conviction. A lot of that preparation, which would have gone forward even in those days on a prison release, has not been done. So, you know, one day he's in prison, the next day he's a free man.
1: In, back in Bakewell. Back,
5: back in Bakewell, yes. I mean, when it was coming
2: towards the end, it was obvious that we were going to get um, the decision to quash the conviction. A lot of the nationals were chasing for exclusives with the family and uh, you know, Stephen himself, etc. I, I mean, I set up one or two deals with him, with the mail and, and other groups so to try and get the family some, some recompense, basically. Because um, I didn't know whether he was going to get any compensation or what mm. on this, when he could have just come out and that was it. So quite a lot of people come out and they get no compensation.
1: At the end of the campaign, the Downings, through Ray and through Don's media contacts, negotiated an exclusive deal with a National Paper and reporter Nick Pryor to cover their story.
2: Nick was the guy that was at the prison when he was finally released. I was going to on, say, on the-
1: was that pre-arranged or was that kind of... Uh, cause yeah. I mean, I think in the, yeah. in the drama thing, it, it implies that it's kind of, you know... Yeah, like it, you, it, you it you was... You were kind pre- of cut out the picture.
2: Well, it was, and that was, that was the unfortunate thing in a way because um, after doing all the work with the... particularly with the Mail on Sunday and that, um, and setting up the deal and giving them the access and etc. when it came to the crunch... Um, when he was released, the mail on Sunday had set up this exclusive thing with, with the family, barred them from talking to me, came out like a rabbit in the headlights, and was put in a car and taken to a hotel and didn't you know, nobody saw them for a twenty four hours sort of thing.
1: So you didn't see him the
2: moment he was released? No, no, no. I was feel? Well, yeah, very surprising really. Um we didn't know exactly when or when where he would be released from or whatever. We presumed it would be that day, and of course the mail were in touch with everybody, and and he was just turfed out of the cell with his black bin line, and uh, next shout, no, you know, yeah, said a couple of words, and then banged away. You see, so um, they did their interview at the hotel with him, all ready for the Sunday papers, etc. And then he was taken home, and he's kept with minders at, at home. You see, with the family and everything else. And I thought, right, okay, next day I'm, I'm going to see Stephen. You know, I went round to the house. And small, t- sort of terraced house, absolutely packed with hundreds of cameras and journalists and everything else, all packed around the house. Television crew from all over the world's there, and he's banged up inside, you know, with the Mail on Sunday crew. So I, I knocked on the door, and, uh, you know, the guys, well, I, I knew them all anyway, quite, and he says, Oh, no, I don't think so. I said, Yeah, I do think so, and just pushed my way in. And um uh, I spoke to him, and, uh, you yeah, know, he sort of shook my hand, Stephen, and, uh, whatever and um but he couldn't really was still under restrictions not to say too much to me in case i reported it and i just said bollocks you know mm. after what i've done for you so the least you can do is, is give me a few quotes and that and so i went back and did did my exclusive and got it out before them really but um it was all sort of taken away and for the next i don't know a few months it was like that very difficult with um things are done and they set up deals with like and TV people, you know, to come and interview him and things like that. I mean, the family got money out of it. I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I got nothing out of it, um, but I did feel very much pushed out of the whole picture, and I was suddenly the, the forgotten person. No, I wasn't in it for the the limelight or the fame or whatever. I was pleased in what what had happened, but it seemed such a thing. And so it you seemed led
1: this. It was your work that had made this happen. Oh
2: yeah, yeah. And the the strange thing was that Stephen was was quite sort of going along with all this really in terms of. Didn't sort of argue; was doing whatever he was told to do. Really, um, never really got any thanks from him, particularly for it, in terms of realizing the effort gone. And the family were almost ignored me as well, really, which I found difficult to take after all the desperation that we'd had over the years. Because you know, eight years is a <laughs> long time, and I felt like I was almost part of the family. Really, Stephen was the almost the odd one out because he he, he was a fixture in, in a distance, but when they're all together. I thought, well, they'd be more than him to have me on board, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a, a bit of a difficult relationship, you know, where Ray and that were saying, well, I, I'm sorry, but I can't really discuss it with you and things like this, and I've got his lad out of prison. Oh. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was, it, it, was, it was very strange, the whole thing. I mean, it, it was... You know, when he when had parades and uh, signatures, 15,000 signatures, you know, it's more than bait was, um population you know wow. um i mean it, it, it was just quite bizarre really i don't know it's hard to put sort of words to it really um i mean you you, you i wasn't bitter I, i'm not bitter now I, I i i wish him all the best whatever he does and but i thought well okay if that's what they want to do i'll keep i'll keep away really and uh i said i never went back to the house again um And that's why I'm always a bit reluctant to sort of, you know, get involved with anything that Mm. comes up now with with him or has come up. Mm. And so it was all a a little Mm. bit... Yeah. A little bit awkward. But he was being fleeced by these people. And he got that many get-rich-quick-scheme people in touch with him about buying this and doing that. Uh, He ended up with about three cars, I think. And, uh, you know, he he learned to drive in a rush. And he was was going to be a photographer He's going to be... Run a restaurant, he was going to do all sorts of things, you know, and Mm. not much was likely, really, because he got no experience, really.
1: Series researcher Pippa Godfrey came with me to Bakewell. What did the woman at the museum say to you? She said.
10: This was the Bakewell Museum. Yeah, she didn't want to talk about it. uh, But she said it was terrible when he was let out because suddenly no one knew who'd done it and people were accusing each other, left, right, and centre. Wives accusing husbands, uh, children accusing fathers. Uh, There was a man who had to leave his business and was effectively run out of town. But she did say that suddenly everyone had it in for everybody and used it as an excuse. That's one of the things she said. They they used it as an excuse to get back at people they didn't like.
1: The next task was to try and identify the real killer of Wendy Saul. Motivation seemed to be divided between... Those like Don and the Downings, who wanted to highlight police failures and clear Stephen's name, and others who wanted to get justice for Wendy. Almost immediately, Derbyshire police launched Operation Noble, a reinvestigation of the murder. Tony Blockley was part of the investigative team, which was led by David G.
6: I was the um, head of crime uh, in the police force at the rank of detective chief superintendent he was he was acquitted on the on the grounds of the police didn't apply the caution properly, uh, and the there was some uh, challenge to the, the forensic conclusions.
1: If Stephen hadn't beaten, Wendy to death with a pickaxe handle, someone else had.
6: So of course, nothing we could do about the caution not being administered properly. Um, and um, again, if it happened today, it would be totally different, because Stephen would be represented. By, by a solicitor anyway immediately and the police would get him one it's moved to that stage now thank goodness um but the forensic side of it um we were lucky that we'd still got the murder weapon we also f- uh, had steven's clothing because um,
1: that, that was given back to the parents wasn't it? it was and yeah. the parents
6: gave it back to me and uh or was, <laughs> should i say and we had it re-examined and the conclusion of jim fraser um within the Public report again. And he's a forensic scientist. He's, he's a, he was an, he's a, He is an. He in Edinburgh now, I think he is an acknowledged blood spattering expert. Mm. He and again, this is rare. He came out with a definitive conclusion mm-hmm. that the blood spattering was consistent mm-hmm. with, mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. Yeah, was consistent with um, when they have been battered to death um, by the wearer. So, so the
1: Stevens clothes.
6: Yeah, that's in the public-facing document. Yeah. That's not me revealing. No, I it. no. It's over there. So um, you don't really get that very often. No,
1: no, because I, I spoke to John Wright at Derby, yeah. and he was talking about how, um, basically, blood—you know—blood spatter, a lot of forensic stuff. Said, here are some stories that might be possible, mm. rather than give it a definitive. But of this course. was
6: this was absolutely definitive in his statement. So that was right. that. W- again, for us. Um, because, of course, we were looking at the time as the case grew uh, and, and the final analysis with the liaison with the local Crown Prosecution Service, the, re- the law had changed recently in terms of double jeopardy. Uh, and, um, which, means- which means that a person previously acquitted for, a, for the, uh, an offence of this type could not be retried, and the law changed. So, we w- we were, that was one of our options um, to actually go down that line. So
11: my name is Tony Blockley, the Head of Policing at the University of Derby. When I retired, I was the Chief Superintendent or the Head of Crime. I had responsibility for all crime in and around Derbyshire. And my kind of specialism, if you like, is around homicide and serious crime investigation.
1: The police used Don's investigation and his theories, as he'd laid out in Town Without Pity, as a template for Operation Noble.
11: The content of the book was the... Appeal and the investigation, and what Don had done over the many years that he'd been supporting Stephen. And um, as a consequence of his release, of Stephen's release, Derbyshire Constabulary were asked to do a reinvestigation, which would be expected practice, uh, into the circumstances of Wendy's uh, death and to establish, because Don was making some very strong claims in his book. And the, the purpose behind the investigation was to establish um, who had who had killed Wendy, if if indeed that could be uh, that could be deduced from the from the evidence. So what we <coughs> we, we did there was a, a number of investigators part of it. I was part of that investigation team. Or we investigated the uh, the death on the basis of the book, if that makes sense. So the book almost became the script of the investigation and part of that was because there was so much evidence within the book that don had talked about bearing in mind that this is 30 this was you know at that time it was 30 years ago so to reinvestigate the offence would have a very limited mm. outcomes but part of the reinvestigation was to establish a what had happened the veracity of don's claims within the book and therefore that would in 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 sort of logical terms, that would lead us to understanding who had killed Wendy or been responsible for her death.
1: So following the kind of lines of inquiry that Don had laid out in yes. his book, Town Without Pity, um, you re-interviewed people that he'd, he'd pinpoint, he'd mentioned yes. as witnesses, at, well, well, yes. ones that were still alive, I guess. Because yes. um, that's well, it, one of the issues about a story, that is a case that is so old that it gets less and less people.
11: Yes, although I think uh, I think he named, uh, uh, and, and again, forgive me, I think this is off the top of my head. Uh, he, he he named about twenty-three different people in the book. I think twenty-three was around, roughly around that number, um, and quite a few of them were still alive. Okay. Um, so it was, it was it was in an interesting process. So we, as as you would in a normal investigation. So if you are investigating a normal homicide, what you would expect to see is that there are significant people within that investigation who you want to trace and identify and the terminology is to eliminate in terms of taking them out of the out of their suspicion if you like so you what you might say is that we we've seen a person that was near the scene of the crime at the time of the incident we need to trace and identify that person or trace and interview that person and then eliminate them from the inquiry so you're not wasting time mm-hmm. still investigating them and, and and that's often quite a complex process it can be the fact that you've got dna or they don't match the description they've got an alibi and, and perhaps it might not be a you know a wife or a girlfriend it's a non familial alibi or there's, there's other supporting evidence so you can say with a degree of certainty they are not involved and you can evidence that process as to why they're not involved so that's what we adopted we adopted that same strategy in terms of investigating the people that were named in Don's work. now Don didn't name them specifically he gave them Mr Orange and Mr Red and Mr Blue so it was very um sort of pulp fiction-y in, in terms of <laughs> yes. that, you know, in terms of what that read like. Um, but he, he, he made some, you know, he made, he made the claims and, um, you know, when you, when you read it, in its, in it at face value, there were some very strong claims in that book, mm-hmm. you know, and, 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 and that's what Don had, had produced. And, and obviously we then investigated the complete book so in an investigation, what would normally happen is, uh, if you've got a statement of somebody, a witness statement, you then, because <clears throat> in, in a witness statement, everything is a fact. So I was on, you know, I was on Agar Street, I was in the University of Derby, um, I was with Lucy, we were in room 307. Each aspect, each of those particular points needs investigation to support whether it's right or not. So... Let's see, was Lucy in the building? Have we got CCTV footage of her? Yes, she was. Were they in room 307? What can we do to find out if they were in room 307? You you know, and that kind of thing. So each line was gone through and actions were created. And and I don't know the full statistics. Um, I mean, I I think there was something like 2,000 odd different statements were taken and, you know. I would would imagine at its height, uh, there was probably about 30 officers working on it.
6: The son came over um, from Canada. Oh really? Yeah, um, because again, in, in one of the allegations, of the son could have done it and all this business. Really? Uh, it, not, it's not wow. the son could have done it, but the son could have been involved. There's all this wow. stuff thrown in, and we had to, we had to track them down as best we could to eliminate. You know, it well,
1: It's quite an emotional journey for him.
6: Oh, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, uh, and for the, and for the, the, the people who were named, you know, the stuff attributed to them which they then not just said they didn't do they vehemently denied it
1: was john and marshall ever ever rumored to have done it
6: oh yeah 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 and there are people with the, with the loosest of uh, connections to to wendy who who became inverted commas su- potential suspects but they weren't really um but we we had to these assertions have been made and we had to actually confirm or deny them and if you read the so' someone report, they'll see that.
1: So what were the most surprising things for you um, during the during the
6: investigation Well, the candour the, the candor of the, the Downing family and my relationship with them was, I expected, because uh, I didn't know them at all, I expected some hostility, but not a bit of it. In fact, to the contrary, it uh, was first name basis, um, and I had a really close relationship throughout the whole uh, the whole investigation with them. Um, and um, Ray, Ray would tell me, would say things to me, oh, you'll never guess, uh, Mr. G, guess what? Stephen admitted it to me yesterday. And, oh, did he? Yeah, yeah, we went, we were in Chesterfield, this, this apartment, this flat he was moving into. Uh, and I said, oh, did he? He said, yeah. So would you make a statement, Ray? Yeah, fine. And what? made a statement. He
1: made, he made a statement that Stephen admitted to doing, killing Wendy? Absolutely. Absolutely.
6: What? That's in the file. That's in the file, so um, that was the relationship we had, and uh, and so
1: what, what did you do with that? I mean, well,
6: he didn't do anything; he just told us.
1: And and what did you have to? Well, obviously you were investigating that because you were investigating. No, well, we
6: wanted to at the end at the end of the the, the whole process. We wanted to interview Stephen under caution. Right. Of course, Stephen, uh, as a right, uh, didn't choose not to take that option. That's that's up to him. But the, the, so there were things like that that. Um, um, the, the recollection of people was, was amazing to me. Um, the backstory um, was fascinating. Uh, can you talk about that? Th- well, the intimate, the intimate nature of who knows what's going on in Bakel, who knows who, who's seeing who, um, and it was opening up um, a, can, a can of worms, if you like. And the polarisation of views, if you like, oh Stephen Downing is guilty. Stephen Downing is definitely not guilty. He was picked up by the police and all the rest of it. Allegations about raised behaviour. Sexual... Yeah. Yeah. Uh,
1: In fact, he was convicted, wasn't he, years later? He
6: was, and that came out during the investigation. Um, The pressure on us then was, first of all, to ensure the safety of any victim or potential victim, whilst at the same time not being potentially being accused of a witch hunt against the Downing family.
1: And, and what were the were the were the results of your investigations? So um,
11: the results. So as part of the work that Don did, he made a number of. Claims in the book,
1: yes, because there, there were. Tell us about the suspects and, and the, the su- investigations into those. Okay, claims. so so the
11: suspects, um, so we identified as many suspects, and there were. There were and again, I, 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 I can't remember exactly how many were still alive, but there was a substantial number still alive. So we did the investigation into those suspects, and wherever we could, we traced them, we identified them, and we went through this process of eliminating them through various
1: inquiries. But the police quickly found what they felt were. Problems with the case and the narrative as reported by Don and in the book.
11: And in actual fact, the reality was of all the people that were named in Don's book, every single one was not, was deemed not suspicious or not part of the, the responsible for Wendy's death, which left nobody in terms of Don's claims. I said, Sorry,
6: so are, there, are,
1: there, are there holes in. in, in... Don serious in *Town Without Betty*.
6: Well, um, shall we say things that couldn't be validated, assertions and allegations, whatever. And it's fair to say that um, there were significant disparities from our perspective as to what was actually written. Um, uh, of course, that was the book was, was um, resulted in a, a large part of the re because these Israel, Israel allegations about people. Uh, in the end. I think think a lot of people like to think it was honourable and just to uh, address this alleged miscarriage of justice, but whether the, uh, certain things were, uh, judgement was clouded because of that, because it became again the cognitive bias, this is a truth, this is a truth. We will then only search for stuff that points to that as a truth.
1: But I suppose in, in terms of Don's role in the, in the getting rid of the in
6: denial, Mm. Clause and that seems like quite an important achievement. Don Don has achieved a lot of things out of this. We're still talking about it. <laughs> we're still talking about it. Whether uh, he or whether we, the Derbyshire Police, have pr- provided a definitive answer, I guess not. Uh, and we were always behind the eight ball in the sense that it was 30 years after the, it happened that we started to reinvestigate. Well, that has its own difficulties. However, I'm comfortable that there was sufficient and sufficient validation of facts in the ensuing report that justify the comment made by Bobwood that there remains one suspect, and uh, we haven't been able to speak to him.
12: A
11: brutal murder, a wrongful conviction, a 27-year fight for justice. Read the full story that inspired this podcast. In Murder in the Graveyard, investigative journalist Don Hale tells the story of his relentless fight to overturn the longest miscarriage of justice the UK has ever seen. Delve deeper into the case that shocked the nation. Murder in the Graveyard. Available now in paperback, ebook, and audio narrated by author Don Hale himself.
1: So I've just been chatting to, to Matt, my editor, about how it's going, and um, I'm feeling very guilty how it's going I'm feeling very much like I'm getting a lot of people Um, a lot of people have told me off the record no one will tell me on the record but a lot of people are absolutely 100% certain that Stephen Downing killed Wendy Um, but you know no trial by podcast um and a lot of people have told me that they think that Don's book is a tissue of lies, that it's made up. It's, Don is a fantasist, quote one person, um, that he never did, did half the interviews he claims to have done. Um, um, and it's a kind of, yeah, fabrication. And I feel incredibly like I'm betraying Don. It feels bad talking behind his back. But um, So I, what I need to do is I need to get together all the suggestions I've had from other people and go and put them to Don and see what he (laughs) has to say about the matter. It won't be the first time his work's been criticised or rubbished by many, many people. Um, So I need to go and give him a chance to answer the criticisms and uh, accusations that have been levelled at him. So I think it's back to Wales.
2: Who's slagging me off then?
1: What do you think of that operation, Operation Noble?
2: Oh um, well, it was pretty pathetic, to be honest. Um, they knew right from day one when Stephen agreed to take part in this that um, he he wasn't prepared to take an interview under caution because he'd just come out of jail after mm. 28 years. There was no new evidence. You can only be interviewed under caution if there's fresh evidence, and, the, and there wasn't any. Um, the double jeopardy law and things, you know, was all changing, whatever. But I mean, what is the point anyway? Because uh, you know he's he'd done his he'd, more than his time. Uh, I don't know. There was no point in doing it. The whole point of cooperating was to try and find out who really killed Wendysall, not necessarily to look at that. And all they did was to try and revisit some of the evidence that was used uh, in, in the build-up to the appeal.
1: Yeah, and um, Tony suggested that they'd they'd use the the lines of inquiries that you'd identified as kind of root, roots into it, really.
2: Yeah, but these weren't... They classed them as suspects, like 22 suspects or whatever. I mean, they were never suspects. Out of that, there were probably only two potential suspects on it, and they... Well, one's never been interviewed, to my knowledge, to this day, uh, and uh, the other one uh, would prove quite comprehensively that he'd lied about his alibi. So, to me, he was a, he was a prime suspect and a former boyfriend of, of the victim. Um, so those, that's your starting point. The other people were, were purely witnesses... Persons of interest who may have seen something or, or helped to contribute in terms of uh, confirming Wendy's journey. There's no way you could consider them as suspects. But the police, in their wisdom, turned everybody as a suspect and then tried to eliminate them. So it's quite easy to build up and say, "Oh, we've got 22 suspects, but we've eliminated all, all of them now." They weren't suspects in the first place
1: because there seem to be quite. A, just looking at some of the newspaper clippings and uh, things from that time. So. There's a combative air about things that was it an article in the Times and Telegraph. There's some quite critical pieces written mm-hmm. about about your methods and the work that you'd done. Yeah,
2: these were basically the, the police gave them uh, statements and stuff about it. They their intention was to to try and trash my evidence. Um, lots of things they came up with little tickle tackle things. But again, it was the same emphasis that I'd failed to to identify the, the real killer and things, which wasn't ever my my intention. Good job. You know my. My intention was, pure and simply, to prove that there was doubt against Downing's conviction, mm-hmm. take it to an appeal, and, and to get the conviction quashed. Job done. That's what I did.
1: So why do you think, I just want to stick with the reinvestigation thing, because it seemed like there was a, suggesting the there were holes that you'd left bits out on purpose.
2: Nothing was left out. I mean, they had access to everything I put forward, um, everything went through to the um,
1: Or in the your commission. appeal, in the in yeah. your submission that you'd yeah. left bits out to create a certain picture.
2: Well, if they tell me what bits are left out, I can tell you. But honestly, there was nothing left out. They had access on several occasions to everything. I, I tried to copy them in. That was probably a mistake because it gave them the heads up in terms of what I was going to say.
1: Oh, but when you put together the yeah, submission, yeah. you copied the police? Yeah, yeah. yeah. That seems fair.
2: They had everything. The Home Office had everything and the CCRC had everything. So I don't see... And, and Obviously, when they came, they, they did this reinvestigation, I gave them access to all my files and everything else. They've never said to me, "There's nothing you've not shown us, mm. or anything like that." They had tapes. They had interview notes. They had the whole lot. Um, they are twisted and manipulated things around, as, as they often do.
1: Yeah, because there was suggesting, just look at my notes, that you'd embellished or changed people's testimony. No. What's your response?
2: No, I mean, I mean, quite a lot of things were, were recorded. You know, I gave them copies of these. Um, of tape recorded. Of tapes. Yeah, they had, uh, you know, transcripts. They had tapes. They had. Uh, Whatever, um, and they were claiming sometimes that you know people hadn't been interviewed by me when when I've got copies of all the interviews and tapes and things like right, that. Right, that's going to be my yeah, it's yeah. Just saying yes. Um, so I was I was more than happy. You know, it, it wouldn't be my interest to to withhold anything if I thought somebody was saying something slightly different to what we thought originally. It would be my interest to to give them that information. But I keep saying the way the way it's been manipulated by the police is that as if I was on the trail of the of the killer.
1: And they said they just basically got a copy of your book out of the uh, the library and... and And tried to trash it. Yeah. 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 Some people had doubts too about the intimidation and the attacks that Don had reported.
11: Some of the stuff in Don's book were, I don't know, we were never able to uh, substantiate some of the claims that had been made and actually there were some people that suggested what Don had said didn't actually take place.
1: Is this about the attacks on him? Yeah, yes, stuff? there was or
11: something around things? the attacks. So there was being run off the road and da-da-da and all that kind of I've stuff. We were, of we were never able to substantiate that. There was no damage to any fields. We were able to work out from how he described it where it had happened. You know, whether it had happened somewhere else and it got confused, I don't know. But we felt that it hadn't happened there. There was the attack on the, the newspaper officers. That was never reported to the police. You know, there was no records of that happening. Well, there was no records of it happening, Mm. whether it was reported or not is another issue. Um, And, you know, so there's a few things in there that were... We were unable to say definitively they had happened.
1: And one of the things, you know, while we're on people slinging mud at you, and you know, it's not the first time I'm bringing these things no, no. up with you, um, there have been, you know, those people writing things that they think that the attacks on your life and the threats is made up mm. that you've fantasy to see that didn't happen.
2: Well, <laughs> what can you say? Um,
1: you Particularly know, the it, lorry chase.
2: Well, how can you prove it when you're on your own on a, on a, de- a deserted road at the middle of the night and suddenly a, a lorry starts chasing and banging into it, etc. Um, I mean, if, the dog, if my dog was still here, he would, he would probably tell you. But there's nobody else. They're not interested. They don't want to take any of this on board, you know. So I don't see what more I could have done.
1: In the end, who knows? It's one version of a story against another. Many raise a questioning eyebrow over these dramatic stories. Don believes they happened, and Jackie, who works with him, sees no reason to doubt.
9: Yeah, I mean, he said that people had threatened him, and I believed him. He genuinely seemed quite shocked when he came in after, he, you know.
1: I spoke to Wendy's husband, David Saul, at length on the phone and he didn't want to revisit his wifes brutal murder. He is still very angry. He told me he'd found the reinvestigation very unsettling for the whole family and for Wendy's mother in particular.
7: It's very difficult for her husband and her family and her mother who continued to live in Bakewell for a long, long time after Wendy was murdered.
1: And her mother was still alive when you were searching?
7: Her mother was. I didn't meet her. I tried to meet her. She didn't want to discuss it, um, but I did know people who knew her and I knew that she was... She was an old lady then. I knew that she was um, upset and confused by what had happened. I mean, on the one hand, you know, your daughter's murdered in the most incredibly savage way... And then later on um, uh, an account of the murder emerges which appears to um, damn her daughter for sort of, uh, in effect, bringing it on herself.
1: In the course of Operation Noble, the police spoke to over 1,500 people and interviewed 22 persons of interest. The only person they didn't speak to was Stephen. And at the end... This was the conclusion they reached.
2: The police are not looking for any other person for the murder of Wendy Sewell, a young woman in the prime of her life who was robbed of her future as a result of this vicious attack. All possible
12: lines of inquiry have been exhausted. The case is now closed unless any substantial new evidence comes to light.
1: Do you think ever wished he
9: hadn't taken it up? I don't know, really. I mean, I suppose... In a way, it's led him to have a career looking at miscarriages of justice and doing other research and things. So, I suppose it led him to to do quite a lot of, and he's been involved in lots of
1: other cases since, hasn't he? Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. So, opened a door. Yeah. Um. Just fast forwarding to now. Mm. Um. I mean, are you going to continue with the miscarriages of justice, or is it time to take
2: no, your- no, no. No, I I finished. I d- I didn't want to do the other three. <laughs> Never mind the first one, really. But no, I mean, I I wanted a quieter life. I mean, I I've enjoyed in a sense working with the team from HarperCollins on on this one. And you can buy the book. You can listen to the podcast. And this. this this is what people have not heard before, really. The mm. the true story of of what it's like to be involved with something like this. And it's it's a fascinating, scintillating, dangerous sort of roller coaster ride.
1: Was it worth it?
2: Well, it, I mean, it's worth it to see, you know, people like Stephen particularly uh, out. Um, he was able to get out and have maybe, uh, I don't know, t- 10 years or something with his parents uh, before the past. You know, that was very precious because I think if, he, if he'd been in... If he's still in jail now and his parents had, had passed away, there's nothing to come out
6: for, really.
1: So what is the legacy of this case, of the brutal murder of
6: Wendy Saul? The taste in my mouth, still is that Wendy was re-victimised, her memory was re-victimised, and continues to be re-victimised by this, uh, every two or three years, something else comes out. But,
1: when you didn't know her? No. But from all the people you've spoken to, what picture of the woman, not the victim, do, do you get?
6: Well, she's always described as uh, an attractive brunette in a, in a typical lurid, uh, sexist way uh, that's my view uh, and I guess she was a, a, a normal girl um, with a marriage um, that and people have marriages uh, have, and partnerships have their ups and downs as we all do and I guess they did um, and then because um, of her alleged uh, adultery um, then all of a sudden she becomes uh, oh well that's okay for it to be a victim then mm-hmm. now I just think uh, any town, anywhere, any time, there are Wendy Souls, And she's no different from me, you, anybody, else. I don't know you,
1: but anybody. Yeah, else. no, I, well, what I bring that up is because when I'm reading, and I've been speaking to some people, I'm reading uh, stuff about her, so I get this impression of her as being a very bright, yes. um, attractive, yep. creative, yes. funny...
6: Popular. Everybody I spoke to, uh, Ray Downing included. Uh, no natural enemies, didn't appear to have and uh, was a figure around town who everybody knew.
1: And she moved in from Sheffield rather than yep. being born and bred. That's right. Being bright and outgoing. I, th- yep. I figure she must have kind of stood out. And yeah. really t- well, Probably City Girl.
6: And- city Girl come to the, to the hills, you know, to the sticks. And that, that, that's not in any derogatory yeah. sense. That day when she left her office to go to look at headstones for her father's, like a recent bereavement of her father for ideas, um, proved, to be a, proved to be a downfall.
1: Do you think he was just in the wrong place at the wrong time? Well,
6: uh, uh Or is it more targeted? It's a very loaded question.
1: OK. <laughs>
6: I have a theory which I can't say on here, but... OK, so. <laughs> you definitely have the record. Yeah. yeah.
4: I don't think the impact uh, either of the crime or of the conviction or of the release has had a terrific impact on on Bakewell. I'm Matthew Paris, a Times columnist.
1: Matthew was also the former MP for West Derbyshire, which includes Bakewell.
4: But it, but it has had, in a subtle way, I think, an effect on the town. The town was not entirely kindly uh, portrayed, and and the the sheer horror of of the scene of of, of her murder. Has become a little bit associated, uh, no, not not with Bakewell and Bakewell people, but it's something that people, who were there at the time, don't forget. I drive past every time I go into Bakewell, and I've never especially wanted to get out and and walk around. And I I don't think anyone, who was in Bakewell at the time, will ever do other than associate that that scene, that 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 patch of churchyard. Uh, with 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 the awful murder, uh, place gets indelibly associations, and it's um that's a very sad and 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 persisting one.
1: There seems to be a kind of you know sort of division of opinion even now about Don Hale. When I've been um, visiting, um, and people kind of, some people are like uh, they're still feeling of like he shouldn't have stirred up trouble. Um.
4: There were plenty of people in Bakewell. Who, uh, whatever the arguments of process about his conviction, uh, remained pretty sure uh, that that he had been the murderer, and 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 there there still are. A- and of course, people like that will feel about uncomfortable about him. Uh, one, one one can't avoid that. There is a sub theme t- to this story, which perhaps hasn't been given the attention that it deserves. People who are mentally fit to plead, which he he, he certainly was, um, he, he's not a, a moron or anything like that, but are just a little bit, we used to say remedial and I don't know what we say now, um, how the law and how the police treat such people is 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 a very tricky and and, and sensitive matter, and, and and plainly the Bakewell police didn't get that right, and and I bet that isn't the only case uh, where the police aren't aren't getting this quite right, and I don't blame the police. Uh, if someone is either fit to plead or they aren't, I suppose, but but you do need special training and special sensitivity when you're dealing with someone who isn't a particularly bright spark.
1: I was surprised to find a real, living legacy in Derby University. The mistakes in the investigation of Wendy's murder and the behaviour of the police, which resulted in Stephen Downing serving 27 years in prison are being used by the university in order to train police how to police well, and correctly, as a cold case to investigate and learn techniques and learn what not to do. Tony Blockley is the head of the course. Stephen's case is done and dusted, yes, if you like. Yes, Scott, yeah. you, you so, know. so we use cases. it as a case
11: study. So what, we, what we've done normally is we've given a presentation and i've given a presentation or somebody else has given a presentation on uh steven's case you know about the investigation about the flaws in the investigation about the conviction about then the subsequent and consequential actions of that you know around an unsafe conviction etc cetera, etc cetera. um but i think what we're going to do next year because i think it does generate a lot of interest and a lot of discussion is we're going to actually get our students to analyze the case
1: and present it back to us and the students on the course have been instrumental in identifying problems with cases of Britons who have died abroad, and getting the police investigations where the students have identified problems in the case reopened.
11: Recently, we are, have started doing work with um, cases abroad, murdered people murdered abroad, and that's that, that, that's had um, elements of success to it. You know, we've got a current case that we. We're still waiting for the outcome on, which was a young lady called Claire Martin. And um, we produced, or I produced, on the basis of what we'd, the work we'd done, an expert report in terms of what we thought. Uh, she was originally said she committed suicide. We said she With hasn't.: that abroad. Yeah, in Italy, uh, We've said, no, she hasn't committed suicide. There are some failings in the investigation, but actually the evidence that we have would suggest she was murdered. Uh, there was some significant evidence that we all covered. Which hadn't been uncovered. And this in is
1: you and your, your students. Your yes. students part of your team. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's fascinating.
11: Yeah, and actually now we're just waiting for it to be hopefully be reopened as a murder investigation in Italy. And bearing in mind, these are going to be lawyers or police officers or within the criminal justice system.
1: That's interesting. So, so, you, so you, Stephen Downey's case, which was a, used as a kind of criticism of a bad practice, and it's now being used to educate yes. good practice. Yeah, absolutely.
11: That's I think it is. I've not actually thought about it like that. Uh, you know, that's interesting yeah. that we we have turned this sort of negative image of what happened into a positive learning experience. So...
1: And yeah, and, and, it's not just for you know analysis, but actually people who are gonna go out and do it. That's yeah, what's interesting. Yeah. So in a way, in an oblique way, Wendy's murder has at least been useful in getting some justice and resolution for other grieving families. It's not much, but it's something I suppose.
3: in some senses when when something like this happens and I think when you do reflect on it you think there weren't any winners here um, at all and that um, u- ultimately this was something that was played out on the national level and in the national media but ul- ultimately it's it's just a, a very sad personal human tale here um, that you know ultimately Wendy's family lost someone who was was loved and was was very dear to them.
1: It doesn't take away from the brutality of the attack on Wendy Saul on that sunny September afternoon in the graveyard in 1973. The attack that robbed her of the life that she might have led and denied her a future. There are no victors in this story. Reporter Murder in the Graveyard was presented and produced by me, Lucy Ditchmont. It was mixed by Dave Dodd. The music was composed and performed by Edwin Pearson. The executive producer was Matt Hall. Reporter Murder in the Graveyard was a Wireless Studios production. And you can listen to Reporter, Murder in the Graveyard on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever you get your podcasts from. And please feel free to rate and review.
12: (laughs) William Tyrrell was a three year old boy who disappeared from the township of Kendall on the New South Wales mid north coast on 12 September 2014. Police have been told he was outside playing one minute and gone the next. His disappearance has become one of the most puzzling investigations in Australian history. It has been going on now for almost five years. Millions of dollars have been spent. The strike force at one point had 26 full-time detectives. Hundreds more around Australia have been exploring 600 possible suspects. And what has all that been for? William is still missing. My name is Caroline Overington. This investigation, Nowhere Child, is available now. To hear more, just search for Nowhere Child in your podcast app.